It was um, 46 years ago this month that I met Rod and Joyce Boston. And I know that I would not know this church and wouldn't have opportunities to preach here uh, if it were not for my long and strong friendship with Rod and Joyce. And uh, during those years and to this, I spoke with him last Monday, a week ago Monday, on the phone. And the friendships that you all have had, what his, what you all have meant to his family for 30 plus years uh, is, you know, books could be written about that. And I don't know the depths of that kind of friendship. But I know that in this building tonight are probably the people who know and love Rod and West Boston more than anybody, any other place or any other group of people that I can imagine. And you know, and I do too, that there has not been a time where Rod's faith and his life have been challenged as have these last six months since Joyce's death. And I'm really glad for the opportunity to, I, I, I am with people who I know, you have reached out to try to talk with Rod, and so have I. We, we, got, we all know to be kind of careful with all of that, but, but the greatest gift we can give is to pray for him and pray for Wes, and I know you do that, and I certainly do as well. And it's really nice to be with you all, and, and I, I just, I, I want to honor that friendship and and especially at a time in his life when he needs, he has done so much in so many ways for all of us. Me, my story is, is a different version of the same one for you. And probably deep inside all of us, we want to make a return. And, and uh, we can certainly be praying fervently, fervently uh, for Rod and Wes, and that on, at the end of these trials will be a stronger and deeper faith than the strong and faithful men that all of us already know. And, and, and when that time comes, we will praise God and we will thank God for what he has done in their lives as he does in all of us as he leads us through the trials of this life. In our studies together since Sunday morning, we have we have tried to ask with great respect for God. We have imagined the opportunity to come into the presence of God and speak to Him. And to speak honestly about questions that we might have, especially questions that are presented to us because of, of, of times that seem unprecedented. They, they, they seem like, well, this is never, what's going on here? And in the result, as we come from that, then there are questions that come to our minds. Oh, what am I supposed to see here? And we let God answer those questions. We did that as we studied together and discovered that according to God's teaching, this world was never created to satisfy man's deepest, most basic, most profound needs. We want happiness and fulfillment and and a, a fulfilled sense of purpose 
in this life and find real happiness. We all long for that. But this world can't provide that. And there are a lot of frustrated people and a lot of people who've wasted their life imagining that if they just try harder, that they will find in this world those kinds of things. And it's a vain effort. We've talked We've talked about that. And then we looked at, okay, well, where is all this going? And last night was the difficult answer for all of us to hear. And it goes way beyond what's going to happen to this economy or the next political election or things like that. It goes way beyond that. Where is all this going? We're all going to stand before God in judgment one day. And sinners coming before God in judgment, will be sentenced to an eternal hell where there is fire and pain and darkness and screaming in anguish forever and ever away from the presence of God. That is the end for a sinful world. And it is only then that we can begin to properly see what we're supposed to be doing and what direction we're supposed to take as we live here. So tonight, I want to address the question of, is there any hope? Is there, is there light at the end of what last night ended as a pretty dark picture? And we need, we need to know that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and be unprepared to meet him. That ought to terrify us. At that moment, last night, I introduced you to a man named Gary. And Gary was a very worldly man who lived, whose story finds its roots decades ago. And he was working in a factory and a man came behind him and asked him three questions. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. What would happen to you if you died tonight? Well, I guess I would go to hell. Does that bother you? Yes, it does. And I'm going to do something about it. Well, we have looked at two things this uh, this, these last four days. One of them in an earthly way. This world doesn't have anything here for us. We ought not imagine that it does. We ought not be invested here. And there are people who would imagine that with a little more genius, with a little more science, with a little stronger will, with a mightier nation, an alliance of nations, that somehow we can take this disappointing existence on the planet and we can turn it into something that really is worthwhile. But the book of Ecclesiastes, as it does in so many subjects, tells us what a vain effort that is. Because Solomon said to himself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So just, just ask the 
the brightest minds that this world can produce, the best of medical science or military and strategic might, and bring them all together and say, fix this planet. Make life under the sun something that is rewarding and satisfying and fulfilling, and they can't do it. It's a vain effort, and Solomon has tried it before, a long time ago, way more than what we could. It's vanity and it's striving after the wind. What about my friend Gary, whose problem is not wrestling with this world and trying to make it better. His problem now is he's standing before God, and he's broken. And he knows that if he's going, if he were to die right now, he would go to an eternal hell. Can you bring the brightest minds and the, the doctors of science and military technology, can you bring the powers of this world together to fix that problem? Or Gary's response was, and I think you heard me say it just a moment ago, and I, uh, this is a quotation. He told me this story himself. And the quotation was, uh, does that bother you? And his answer was, yes, it does, and I'm going to do something about it. Can he do something about it? Can he do something about it? He is unprepared to meet God, and it is terrifying him. And he has the honesty to say what really is the case. But can he fix it? I'm going to do something about it. Can he do something about it? I want to tell you that according to the Bible, the answer is no. There is nothing he can do about it. Now let me explain just a bit, and I'll... I want to add to what I have just said in a moment. But many people imagine as they look back at the things they've done in their life that are wrong and and they say, if God would just take away my past, give me another chance, maybe give me a mulligan on this one, let me try again, I'll get it right, I'll be a better person, I'll be good to my neighbors, I'll treat my wife right, I'll be a better person. Just think about that for just a moment. That is the voice of someone who who is imagining that if they if they could if they could just get another start, they'd get it right. They'd be able to push the right buttons. They'd be to answer. They'd be able to answer the questions correctly this time. They'd make the right choices instead of the wrong choices. And then at the end, then they would finally be pleasing to God. But they just need another start. Now I I know I'm. A, exaggerating all of that, but I'm doing it intentionally to make the point that there are a lot of people who kind of think that if they just have another chance, they'll get it right or they'll do it better. That is the kind of thinking that would say, here's my problem. I I am not where I ought to be before God and I am rushing toward judgment day and I am unprepared. And I can fix the problem. God will just kind of give me another chance. I'll get it right. Look in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to read, we're going to be in Romans some tonight in your New Testament. So when you find the book of Romans, you'll want to uh, put a marker there or something so you can come back to it. But Romans 3, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 and be watching real carefully 
for what is said here about how effective it is to make things right by keeping law, whether it is the Old Testament law, Ten Commandments, other laws, or whether it is the law that was given to the non-Jewish world and those people and that situation described in Romans chapter 1. Okay, so, but, but the issue in verses 19 and 20 is, let's just imagine that we want to keep the law. And, and we're going to keep it in such a way that we're, we're going to make God happy. How's that going to work? How, how will that turn out? Well, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, so uh, there, without kind of describing a whole other subject, let me just say that the term law used in those two verses is not a term, not a word that is used exclusively of the law of Moses. Though that law is a part of this picture. The context of Romans 1, 2, and 3 includes the Gentile world who had a law. It was written in their hearts. But whatever the law was, that law or the law of Moses, people couldn't keep the law. And they were, they were judged guilty and rightly so because of that. So what is the conclusion? And the conclusion in verse 20 is, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You, you can't become someone who was once guilty, but now is treated as an innocent person. The process I just described is what the word justified means. You take somebody who's guilty, rightfully Everybody knows they're guilty, but, but something happens that treats that person now as an innocent person. And it's right and just and fair, and that person can go on and they are innocent. That's the process of justification. That person has been justified. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So there's no way to present ourselves as once guilty, but now innocent by keeping law. It doesn't work. And and all of the Gentile experience proves that. All of the Jewish uh, experience proves that. So that the conclusion is, here's what law does. Here's what law does. It brings about a knowledge of sin. I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote, No one knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. I think that's a quote worth keeping. No one knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. Try keeping the law. 
Try being just before God by keeping the law. It'll prove one thing. You can't do it. And that's the very purpose for which God gave the law. The Gentile law, the Jewish law, law. That's, that's how it's, that, that, that was its purpose. So, someone who says, okay, well, I, if you just give me another chance, I'll be able to get this all right now and I'll be fine in my relationship with God. The concept of that right relationship with God has been tried and tested and proven a failure long, long time ago. Justification by works will not work. Okay, so the, the first thing I, I wanted I want to say is ultimately right there is where my friend Gary was. His experience with his life proved that he was a sinner. And he was unprepared to meet God. If he died right now, he would go to hell. And that bothered him. That experience, that moment, that I suspect has been your experience too, if you've become a Christian, in in some form, you know what it means to be bothered by the thought that you're going to stand before God unprepared. Okay, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 25, that was exactly the experience, that's exactly where Felix stood. He heard about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and he trembled. And I think Jesus begins explaining the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 5 by making this point very clearly. The very first words of Jesus when he preached the famous Sermon on the Mount, those words were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? That the one who is truly fortunate is the one who understands their spiritual bankruptcy. They're empty. They have nothing. There's there's nothing that they can put on the table to take a guilty sinner and themselves make that person acceptable to, to God. And the kingdom of heaven begins with people who understand their spiritual bankruptcy. And so, the the question that I was asking is, okay, you're unprepared to meet God. Does that bother you? Yes, it does, and I'm going to do something about it. And my question a moment ago was, well, can he do something about it? And he can't. And I think this is a really important thing to think about as we wrestle with these kind of things ourselves sometimes, but as we talk to other people who are kind of um, sympathetic toward religion, they're kind of sympathetic toward God, they they like Jesus, but but not seriously. And, And they're really just asking for another chance to be a good person. They're going to be a good person, and that's going to make them feel good about death and the judgment that is to come. 
And it is really important to know that the problem that we're facing, the problem of sin, that is the real problem of humanity, that problem is one that we cannot solve. We cannot solve it. It's all we've tried. Humanity has tried. You've tried. And I have too. And we are guilty. And Jesus says, you are, if, if that's where you are, you are right where he wants you to be. Because you can't be a part of the kingdom of God unless you begin by recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy. So then let me ask the question again. Is there, is there any hope? I, I, if my friend Gary recognized that he was not prepared to meet God and, and I'm going to do something about it, if what he means by that, if he means by that is to look for somebody outside of himself who can solve that problem, now he's thinking biblically. Now he is talking, uh, he is talking about this in a, in a Bible, in a godly way. Look over in Romans, you're, you're in Romans, but Romans chapter 3, we, I read verses 19 and 20. Look beginning at verse number 21. Romans chapter 3, verse number 21. If there is any hope for our lost condition, and for the sake of this sermon, let's don't don't get ahead of me here. Don't please don't get ahead of me. If there's going to be any hope for us, we realize, don't we, now, that that help is going to have to come outside of ourselves, or we are not going to have any hope at all. Because if we rely, if we are left to rely upon ourselves. It's a failure. It's a disappointment. We can't do that. We can't make ourselves right before God. Read Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9, where it states that in a very clear and powerful way. So if there is going to be any hope, then it must come from outside of ourselves. But who would, who would do that? What is, what is the price that has to be paid to recover the loss that sin has imposed on humanity. What's the cost that has to be paid to fix that problem? Wow. Who could pay it? Who could pay it? And if someone could pay it, who would pay it? And so and, and of all the options that our brains might ever consider as ways that this problem might be resolved, there was one and only one way the problem could be solved. And listen to how it's described in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. Verse 21 begins by saying, Now apart from the law. Let me stop there for just a moment. Okay, we know we are moving in a right direction here. Because trying to be in a right relationship with God on the basis of law, we just got through reading about that. And the first three chapters of the book of Romans prove 
That's not going to work. So now, in verse 21, apart from law, you mean there's another system? You mean there is something, there is hope found somewhere else than me keeping the law well enough, accurately enough, perfectly enough to be justified before God? Well, let's see. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Oh, so what has God shown about himself that is right? That is what it ought to be. What is the kind of behavior from God that is consistent with the very nature of God? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What, what is shown? Well, it is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, the Old Testament law and prophets are witnesses and looking in at what God's doing in His righteousness. Even, here it comes, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus okay so if if the solution for our problem cannot be found by anything that we might do to fix this and the only hope is that somebody would and could solve this problem for us. If that exists, our response to that somebody would have to be faith. I trust Him. I believe in Him. He is my only hope. And of course, I'm, I'm using the very language we just read. The righteousness of God has been demonstrated through faith that is in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And so into this broken world, a world filled with sinful people, doomed to be forever separated from God, into this broken world steps the Son of God to pay the price to rescue lost people from their destruction and their doom to rescue. He would pay that price. And we'll talk in just a moment about what that price was. And, and of all the options, there was only one way sinful people could ever have hope again. There's only one way. And that is that somebody would step in to do for us 
what we could not do for ourselves. And who would do that? Who would do? Why would anybody do that? Especially when we realize the cost to the one who would step in to help us, the cost that it would involve. Who would do that? And why would they do that? And so we continue. Look in chapter 5 and verse number 1. Therefore having been, you're still in Romans, chapter 5 and verse number 1. Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm emphasizing, I'm using that verse just to emphasize again that, that the response that is, is the only appropriate response that would come from sinful people. And that response is faith. I trust what someone else is going to do for me that I can't do for myself. And so it is with faith in Jesus Christ that we begin, the light begins to dawn. We begin to see there is hope. I can't fix this world. I can't fix the problem of sin. But into this world steps Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to pay the price to rescue sinful people that we might be acceptable to God. And the thought of that erupts in the kind of praise and thanksgiving that we find in the book of Romans. We'll get to the end in just a moment. But in chapter 5, I'd like for you to follow as I read from verse number 6. Here's the, here's the story kind of in slow motion. Here's what happened. Romans chapter 5, verse number 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now there's a lot of things to remember from verse number 6, a lot of things to think about. But, but one of them I want you to notice is the condition that you and I are in apart from Jesus. When all we have are our actions and their consequences, we stand in a position before God that is helpless and ungodly. But at the right time, verse 6 says, Christ stepped in and he died for the ungodly. And let's hear more about that, beginning with verse number 7, or continuing with verse number 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for, a, for the good man someone would dare even to die. Let me stop there for just a moment. And so in order for us to appreciate what Jesus did for us, verse 7 makes a casual observation. In this world, who do you find willing to give their life for somebody else? Who's willing to do that? And verse 7 poses two possibilities. There is the righteous man. The, the man who does what is right. He's not going to cheat you. He's not going to lie to you. He's going to do what's right. He's not a particularly generous man, but he is a right man. 
some would, one would hardly die for such a person. Well, the second option, what about the good man who not only does what's right, but he's generous and kind and he does for you good and generous things. Would, some, would, would anyone give their life for a good man? Mm, maybe yes, uh, maybe. Uh, or the language is, perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. So the idea is, the better the person is, the more likely that someone would give their life to benefit that person. The better they are, the more possibility of the sacrifice. Okay? So, let's return to the subject at hand and verse number 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Through Him. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, reconciled to God, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, I know there's some big words in all of that and big ideas to think about. But look what, look what has happened. Someone might die for the increasingly good person. But that's not who we are. Not before God. We are helpless. And we are ungodly. And we are sinners. And we are enemies. Now who would die for an audience like that? Nobody. Except Jesus Christ. Who stepped into this world. And why? Because he loves us. And the, and the idea is, is, is exactly right. This world did not know love until Jesus Christ showed it to us. Oh, the word was used and it was tossed around. But the kind of love that puts the welfare of somebody else above their own and they will give their life for somebody else, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Who had no sin and who was in the joys and peace and blessings of heaven. Why would he come to this world? Why would he suffer the mistreatment and abuse and rejection? And why would he submit to the pain of the cross and the shame and humiliation that went there? Why would he do that? Why? Because he loves us. But we're sinners. He loves us. We're helpless. He loves us. We're his enemies. He loves us. And so from our broken condition, from our lost, this is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's where we are. And what God has done shows us that outside of ourselves, the God who loves us has 
has acted through Jesus Christ to make it possible for sinner people to be regarded as innocent and acceptable before a just God. And that is possible in only one way. In all of the universe, in all time, there was one and only one way that could ever happen. And that's exactly what did happen. And we've read, in a, in a very few verses, we've read the story. This is what's happened for us. And so if we are to find hope at all, God, is, is there any hope? Is there light at the end of this tunnel? Is there any solid ground on which we can stand? The only way to find that light is to look outside of ourselves to what someone else has done for us, to what Jesus Christ has done for us. To make it possible for us to have what we could not provide for ourselves. That's the story. Yes, there's hope. Wow, yes, there's great hope. And it is made available and it is possible through Jesus Christ. Look in Romans chapter 10. And verse number 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, um, going back to my, well, just a moment, I read that too quickly. Romans 10, verse 17, so faith, that is what we are supposed to have, our response toward our Lord Jesus. How does that faith come about? It comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So my friend Gary, when he got off of work that day at his manufacturing plant in Louisville, Kentucky, he went home and arrived at his apartment before his wife got home. Uh, and he, he, he found a Bible, I'm not sure where he got a Bible, and he went to the, uh, the bathroom sink and got a pair of scissors, and he began cutting his very long hair and his very scraggly beard, and he left all the hair in the sink and he got the Bible and he went and sat in the middle of their bed cross-legged in the bed and was reading the Bible when his wife came home and you must understand that this kind of attention to religious things was never a part of their lives that wasn't, that wasn't the way she knew her husband at all. And so into the apartment she walks and she sees the hair in the bathroom sink and she turns and looks in the bedroom and finds her husband sitting cross-legged on the bed reading the Bible and she thought her husband had gone crazy. She thought her, he's, just, he's just gone crazy. Where does faith come from? How do you, how do you get faith? If I want to have... If I want to have faith in Luke, how do I how do I how do I come to trust him? How do I come to have faith in him? I don't just wake up one day and have faith in Luke. I have to learn about him. I have to watch him. Can I really is he really reliable? Does he does he mean what he says? I, faith comes from hearing. Or I've got to learn about him. And the more I learn, I then can decide whether he is worthy of my faith or my trust. It is true in everything and it is true in our relationship with God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to know about Jesus. You, you hear about him, you hear about God, you hear about these things. Okay, 
But you've got to learn about Him. That's the only way you could ever develop faith in Jesus is to learn whether He deserves that faith. Does He deserve for you to trust Him? That's a fair, that's a fair question. Examine. Look. Read. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Read the Word of Christ and judge for yourself. We use the expression, just kick the tires. Test this whole idea. Test all of this Christianity idea. Test it. Ask the hard questions. But make sure that you're willing to hear the answers and deal honestly with the answers. But test it. Because everything rides on your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So my friend read and read and read. Then he went to talk to people and he had thousands of questions. He would ask all of his questions, try to get answers to make sure he would understand this well. And one day he walked in and he, and he told somebody who didn't even know him, I want to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. Who are you? Where did you get this idea that you wanted to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin? I read it in the Bible. And so, after a little bit of a conversation, Gary did what thousands of people did in the Bible and millions since that time. They learned from Jesus. They, he trusted in Jesus. He turned from his life of sin and committed himself to follow Jesus. And he was baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And Gary became a Christian. In the years following, Larry, Gary grew as a Christian. He preached the gospel. He traveled around the world preaching the gospel. He served as an elder for decades and decades until he died in Madison, Indiana two years ago. The story of this great salvation the light at the end of the tunnel, the hope that God gives us. It is the story of the Bible. And this sermon, the minutes that you all have been patiently listening to me, is just a, a very condensed version of all of this. Read it for yourself. Be honest, take it in, ask your questions, kick the tires. And be willing to stand by that which is trustworthy, that which is about which you can be absolutely confident. Stand there. And with faith in Jesus Christ, then see the hope that is possible. Experience that. I, I want to read real quickly before I stop some passages from the book of Psalms. I started in the book of Psalms on Sunday, and I'd very much like to end there uh, tonight. And Psalm 46, verses 1, 2, and 3 is where I will start. So you turn over there, and I'll get there too. And then turn your Bibles quickly as I move from passage to passage. The book of Psalms, of course, is a valuable sample of one man's experience, who through the tears and fears that he experiences in life, through his own sin, through oppression and confusion and injustice, and the bad guys win, the ascension of evil, and going on for a long time, 
These expressions of faith found in the book of Psalms are a blessing to all who have walked a similar path and read them since that time. Psalm 46 and verse number 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Psalm 31 and verse number 3. Psalm 31, verse number 3. You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Please notice especially the use of the word rock. If you have been troubled by the confusing times in which we live, here the psalmist talk about God giving us a rock on which we can stand. There is something solid. It's not found in this world and the things of this world, but there's something solid. God gives us a rock on which we can stand. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Wow. And then Psalm 61, verses 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I don't know how it's been in your life, but I want to tell you how it has been in mine. There have been times and circumstances when I wanted to talk to God, but I didn't know how to say what I wanted to say to God. I didn't know how to say it. Until I re read a passage like verse 3, or verse 2 of Psalm 61. God, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Here's where I am. I don't know. I don't know the journey to the rock that is higher than I. Well, I, maybe I kind of do. It's going to be through trials and tribulations. Those kind of things that make us better and make us stronger. But lead me to a rock that is higher than I. And then the New Testament is filled with further descriptions of how the blessings that God gives us will go on forever and ever. No one can take them away. Our joy and happiness and hope do not depend on circumstances lining up just right for us. This world doesn't have to be formed right for us to be happy, for us to have peace and joy. In fact, this world can't touch the joy that God provides for us.
as we live our lives trusting the promise that God has given to us, that there is an eternal home, an everlasting reward that no one can take away, and that's what's waiting for us. So this series of lessons comes to an end by allowing us to ask God the question, okay, but is there is there any hope? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Where is all this? Where, where is all this going for the righteous? Oh yes, there's light. Oh yes, there's hope. There is joy waiting for those who live their life with faith in Jesus. I said a moment ago that I wanted to close this series of lessons with a passage from the book of Romans. I'm going to read one verse from chapter 15 and verse number 13. And this is the very last verse of the part of Romans that describes how the gospel works. That's what I think Romans is doing. It's showing us how the gospel works. And it's a pretty intricate description. And that description ends with chapter 15, verse 13. And what follows is Paul saying goodbye. But the very last words, as he concludes the summary of the gospel, goes like this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please please pray that for Rod and Wesley Boston. Please pray the words of Romans chapter 15, verse 13 for them. Pray those words for me. And, And pray those words for for one another. That that the God of hope, who is the author and source of the only hope humanity can know, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace that comes in a life of faith or a life of believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a fitting way to end a description of the gospel. What a wonderful prayer to pray. You need the words to know what to say to God sometimes. Pray the words of Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. Is there any hope? Is there solid ground anywhere? Is there light to be found in this darkness? Oh yes, there is. Oh yes, there is. Now what will you do? Will you respond? with faith in Jesus Christ. Will you learn about Him till you trust Him? Turn away from a past life of sin. Resolve that you're going to follow Jesus as your Lord and your Master. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And be raised up to walk a new life in which you live by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you ready to respond to this? This is the story. This is what has happened. And it's your story. It's for you. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with it? We hope you'll hear and believe and respond in obedience to Jesus and his gospel. However however strong I can say that, imagine for just a moment what heaven wishes for you right now.
I hope you'll be thinking about these things and decide to serve the Lord faithfully as we stand to sing this invitation song.